0: Visit SuccessfulNonprofits.com forward slash newsletter to sign up today. And now, friend, let me take you to the episode you've downloaded. Welcome to the Successful Nonprofits podcast. I'm your host, Dolph Goldenberg, and we are going to have an incredible conversation today with Mike Ciccarone about inclusive and effective decision-making. Mike actually started professional life as a middle school science teacher with Teach for America, did it for a few years, and then went on and got an MBA and joined Bridgespan Group. And Bridgespan Group, if you're not familiar with them, you should be, and you should totally check them out. They are essentially a nonprofit consulting practice. So they're incorporated as a nonprofit themselves. They serve nonprofits Local, regional, national, and international nonprofits, literally all over the country and all over the world. And Mike is a principal there. And I'll share with you if you are a consultant with BridgeSpan or if you're a principal, you are also doing much more than just actually working with clients. You're also doing a lot of thought leadership work. So you're writing papers, you're doing research, et cetera. And when I when I went on to BridgeSpan and looked at some of the things that Mike has written and worked on, it's clear that he's really excelled in those areas just as much as he's excelled in consulting. And I'll share with you also his sweet spot in in consulting is around strategy and organizational effectiveness, but especially in that gray space where maybe there isn't a yes or no answer, maybe there isn't a right or wrong answer, and the organization needs to thresh through to figure out what the best answer or the best direction is for it. Hey, Mike, welcome to the podcast.
1: Hey, great to be here, Dolph. Nice to to be with you.
0: Well, I I am thrilled you're here, uh, as should probably not be a surprise. You know, we do a little bit of research on every guest and a little bit of online stalking. And when I went on to Bridgespan.org and looked at some of the things you've worked on, I really, really loved your article around mapping roles when it comes to decision making. And I'm hoping you can tell us a little more about that.
1: Yeah, totally. And, um, and this work really came out of an effort at Bridgespan. Like you said, we do a lot of publications and knowledge. And there's a body of work where we've tried to really put down and share what we learned from our clients on these core topics around strategy and organization effectiveness. And decision-making is a huge piece of that. And so we came to this, this work in this article that we'll talk about today, really coming from a place where so many of our clients were asking the question, who do you include in decision-making and how? And the answer can't be that you include everybody in every decision all the time. Right. Um, and so one of the really effective tools that we use with our clients that we use ourselves and that we talk about in this article is the rapid tool for uh, laying out decision roles. Um, and it has a lot of benefits that lead to more inclusive decisions and then ones that are more effective, but, but at the heart of it, it's about spelling out what are the key roles in a decision and who's playing them in the organization and among your stakeholders. And just at the face of it, that is just really powerful for organizations because it lifts a veil and makes things more transparent about how decisions are made and where does power rest in the organization, which, you you know, immediately cuts to the heart of equity and inclusion.
0: So, Mike, I understand that RAPID is an acronym, and I'm hoping you can walk us through that acronym.
1: Yes, for sure. And it's interesting because while it, you know, the word is RAPID, it's not actually about speed. It's about getting the roles clear and making the decision at a pace that's appropriate for, for what you're trying to decide. But to walk through the roles, um, you know, first off is this idea of the recommender. This is a person who runs the whole decision process, and in the end, they come up with a set of recommendations that then the ultimate decider makes the decision on. There's a process that that recommender then runs where they get input. Those are the eyes. It could be stakeholders. It could be, you know, for a nonprofit, the end constituents who take part in their programs, staff, the board. But basically, all of those inputs that you want to factor in to the actual recommendation to make sure it's sound, to make sure it's understanding all the trade-offs and various things you need to think about. Then there's a specific role in Rapid that's really helpful to identify. The A stands for agree, and this is a person who needs to, literally, you know, agree with the recommendation. It's a role that you don't use all the time, but imagine the CFO who tells you you can afford or can't afford what's in the recommendation, or the architect who tells you the building you want to build is going to fall down. It's sort of an input that has to be factored into the recommendation before you go ahead, because if it isn't, literally the, the decision won't go well. So then we talked about the D, that's the decider, and then the final is the P, the performers, the people who are going to you know um, uh, actually perform and live with the consequences of the decision a really helpful thing to keep in mind with the, the performers is those folks you know, ought to be the inputs as well, right? If they're going to be impacted by this decision, they probably have information about how well it's going to go, about how it's going to play out, where you want to include them as inputs. And the benefit of that, sort of mapping that out clearly, is then hopefully there's more buy-in and the end and decision actually gets implemented more effectively. That's sort of in short the roles, um, and it can be just really helpful in organizations to build this shared vocabulary, right? to go into a room and be talking about a decision and be able to step back and say, oh, who has the D on this? Is this me or is this somebody who's not even in the room? Who needs to provide input? Who's going to be affected by it? Um, building that shared vocabulary as a team and then applying this sort of role framework to your decisions just lifts that veil of, you know, who's making decisions? How did that get? How did that decision get made? Why wasn't I included? Um, and over time, I think organizations really build up this this set of skills and this muscle to make better decisions with it.
0: Can we do a deep dive on how we create that shared vocabulary? Because I heard you say a few moments ago that at Bridgespan, you actually have this as part of your onboarding and orientation of new team members. So what what does that actually look like? How do you include this rapid decision-making framework in onboarding?
1: Yeah, and so it can be as simple as like in the various trainings you do for new staff, just introducing them to the tool and the framework and and what each role is. And then, as you're using it as an organization, folks learn as they go, right? Clients we work with that really lean into this approach. You know they end up, you know, on their internet having a set of all the decisions they've made with the rapid roles mapped out. When there's a new decision, people, you know, learn to talk about it with this with this framework as well.
0: One of the things I'm also really curious about and would love to kind of drill down a little bit on is, what happens when the decision maker, so the recommendation, you know, you've you've gotten the agreement from the attorneys and the CFO and the architect, and you've gotten the input from the stakeholders that you need to get input from, including those who are going to actually be performing the work and the implementation piece. But then the decision maker looks at it and still says, oh, this doesn't feel quite right. What happens then?
1: Yeah, no, that's a great question. I think it, and it ties to a real question of who ought to have a decision role in any decision. In general, um, one of the, one of the things that I think we've learned over time, and our colleagues at Bain using the private sector and our clients, you know, tell us resonates with them, is that D role, the decider, really ought to rest with someone who's as close to the work, but who has an understanding of the trade-offs and the context to be able to make the best decision. Um, often that means it's not the executive director or leadership team, but somebody closer to the front lines in a nonprofit. And I think when you when you get that right, sort of who has the decision power, who has the d, um, sometimes they might look at a recommendation and realize there's some context that wasn't included, or there's some implications of option a or B where maybe the recommender thought option a was the best idea, but option b in the long run makes better sense for the organization. And I think that's where where it kind of comes down to, you know, putting the power in the leader's hands in the organization, who's going to be able to make that decision and look at the consequences. Um, often, though, you know, a recommender might might come forward with a couple of options and the various trade-offs, and it and it's with the person with the D to to weigh those. But yeah, it happens.
0: And so you've also touched on something that I think is critically important. And I'm glad you've already you've already kind of broached it. Is delegating that decision-making so that it's not its not the executive director who plays traffic cop or it's not the CFO who plays traffic cop and greenlights ideas or yellows them or reds them.
1: Yeah, and, you know, in, in writing this article, too, we reached out across Bridgeband and our networks just to talk to leaders in the sector who are doing inclusive decision-making well. One of my favorite conversations was with, was with the CEO of a nonprofit called Thorn that builds technology to protect kids online from sexual abuse. And she told the story of how they grew from a small nonprofit that could sit around one table virtually to, you know, many people, $25 million organization across several continents. And and one of the things that leader, like said, that just stuck with me so well was, you know, over time as they got more complex, she had to learn what decisions she didn't need to make, what decisions she could not make herself that others in the organization could make, which then sort of freed up the leadership team and the CEO to focus on those things. And I think it gets at this idea of how you sort of build the capacity in your organization among future leaders to make decisions. A big part of that comes from the executive director, the CEO, letting go of some decision power and sharing that, but then not just throwing folks into the deep end to make decisions without support, right? Decision-making is a competency, it's a skill, and, and folks get better at it with support, with some guardrails, with an organizational context where they have psychological safety, to put it one way, to actually make decisions and feel like they're going to be trusted with that. So there's a lot there that, you know, when leadership teams and nonprofits realize they need to be making decisions more inclusively. And part of that for them is shared decision power, not just throwing the team into the deep end, but sort of building their skills, giving them sort of guardrails and guidance and and over time getting better and better at decision making because it really is a skill.
0: And what are some ways that organizations can help new decision-makers build their skills?
1: Yeah, so definitely there's a piece that's part of any organization's just overall inclusion and equity journey around building a workplace that feels safe, right? Where people, no matter their background, especially people from marginalized groups, feel like they're going to be able to do their best work. And if they're making decisions, that the decision will be trusted and and carried through, right? There's also just, I think, building people's skills with mentorship along the way, right? Right. If if someone's a new decision maker, say they're the head of a program committee that's going to be making decisions about a, a given program or service, um, sometimes those folks might need guardrails, right? They might need a sense of you know there's a bunch of options we could consider, just so you know these sorts of things are really out of bounds because of context you might not have learned about about our financials or about you know other other things that are ED level, say. So there's this idea of giving folks guardrails, and then I think it's about and this is hard, I think, for leaders who really want to make decision making more inclusive it is about for the ex- executive director or whoever's giving up decision power about letting go truly, right? And, and sometimes people might make a decision that you don't agree with, but if you're truly trying to build their power on your team to make decisions, sometimes you have to let others make a decision that maybe you, you would have done something different and then see
0: what happens, right? That letting go part can be really tough for some leaders.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. I I think um, you know, you often in, in in my work with with clients, a lot of times you'll you'll talk with an executive director who will will say, well, you know, I love to involve the team in decisions, but I have a veto just in case. And I know that's like um, it's a hard thing to let go, right? Because especially someone who's an executive director and a leadership team might feel that they're ultimately accountable for a decision. But when when you do keep that kind of veto in your pocket, I think it it doesn't lead to the folks on your team building their skills as decision-makers in the same way. So finding the right topics where actually that decision ought to rest, not at the, the C-suite or the executive director level, and, and then building the muscles, building the competencies of the team so that you really do feel comfortable with that kind of letting go of power is important. And, and then I think it does free up the leadership team for those decisions that really only they can make.
0: And as you think about some of those decisions that really only the – leadership team or the CEO could make. Like what what do those typically what categories do those typically fall into?
1: Yeah, you know, there's some things that are just like truly high stakes, you know, uh, things that are about your reputation overall and and how you're going to come out on some new policy that really will influence all your stakeholders and your funders and people in your community. Those are decisions that often end up resting at the top of an organization, but really still shouldn't be made without input from the team, right? I think also just decisions that are, you know really huge in magnitude. We worked with a client that had gotten one of these giant philanthropic gifts of many millions of dollars. You know they knew early on that what they spent that money on was going to be ultimately decided on by the CEO, but they had a really inclusive process for getting input from the team, making sure everybody, their stakeholders, people on their board, their partners, had a voice in where those funds might get spent. And then in their process of making the decision, also made sure to circle back to all of those folks to help them understand how the decision was ultimately made, where the trade-offs were, where ideas that didn't ultimately make it to the end, use of this philanthropic gift, why not? And what were they going to do with those ideas in the future? You know? But it was one of these really big decisions, like an existential shift for the organization was one that, you know, for them, felt right to actually, ultimately, the decider was, was the
0: CEO. That does remind me in your article around the five ways that nonprofits can make decision making more inclusive. Also, one of the things that really stood out to me was the concept of authentic input. So since you were just talking about input, I'm hoping you can also share some about authentic input.
1: Yeah, right. And I think most listeners can, can empathize with the experience of being asked for input at some point where it was tokenized, where, oh, we asked a bunch of people for input and then we decided what we were going to decide anyways, Right.
0: If I can just say, even if you're the executive director, you've had that experience because um, if if it did not occur earlier in your career, funders will do that to you. Funders will ask for your input, and you'll show up at a focus group, and you'll give them your your feedback, and then you know they come up with the with the RFP, and you're like, wow, this is nothing that we all talked about.
1: Yeah, and it just I think it burns goodwill and and people's willingness to engage over time. So it's a real watch out, and and there's I think a lot of reasons why that happens, but. When, when you're trying to do the input process really authentically, it probably has a couple of hallmarks, right? One is just, again, identifying the people who are going to really be impacted by the decision because they're going to have experiences and points of view that ought to be factored in. A second point is really, though, if you're going to ask for input, being willing to change your mind. And I think you know leaders scoping out a big decision should also ask, like, to what extent is this input going to change my mind and am I open to it? And if the answer is not at all, I would encourage folks to step back and ask why that is. Right? Is it because you really know the information that these folks have and their experiences, or you know, might you be going in with some preconceptions that actually could lead to a worse decision? And then I think there's just a big piece in authentic input about being really clear about what's ha- what's happening. You know, this is input. We might not take every recommendation we get, especially because there's going to be some conflicting points of view. But here's our process. Here's how we're going to weigh this input. Here's the criteria we're going to use to end up with a final decision. And sort of in gathering that input, building in some transparency, here's how the decision is going to be made so that folks understand in the end where their input went. Um, Because you can't take all of the input you get because there's going to be things that conflict. And so, you know, authentic input doesn't mean you listen to every piece of input, but that the folks engaging and understand then where it went, I think is a big piece as well.
0: I love the way you present that. And I will say also, one of the things I love about the entire rapid framework is it makes it really clear who the decision maker is, whether that decision maker is a program manager or a senior leadership team member or someone else. It makes it really clear. So you're starting with that and everyone's going, okay, this is the person who's going to ultimately make the decision. We're providing input, but this is the person who's the decider.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think in in, in our work you know, on, on that, often it's most helpful for that decider to literally be a single person. Then you don't have the problem of a group who can't decide sort of then, well, what do we do? And and if you, you are the kind of organization where culturally you want to have a group of people hold that decision power, it really helps to go into it with clear rules for how you'll break a tie. Are we going to do a majority vote? Do we truly have consensus? And if so, what does consensus look like? Does it mean we all have to agree? Or is it just that no one disagrees with the decision? If you're if you're going to get really clear on who's deciding and that decision power does rest with a group, it really helps organizations to get clear about what happens if that group doesn't agree, because otherwise you can end up in, in a place where you're unable to make a decision,
0: right? And so admittedly, I have, especially like in senior leadership teams, I've sometimes seen, okay, let's vote on this, go just horribly, horribly wrong, especially like if you've got seven members in the senior leadership team and it's a 4-3 vote. Mm-hmm
1: yeah and I think for a lot of the the clients that I've done this kind of work with, it can actually be you know in a way liberating to to get to the other side of that where it's like, you know what? I'm the Chief Program Officer. this is my decision, and I'm going to make it and then you know their program managers know that's that's the dynamic or or the reverse, like I'm the Chief Program Officer, and you no know, program director a this is your decision. I would love to give you input on it, and you should check with these other folks, but you are going to make the decision and live with it. I think that you know, on the other side of those, oh, gosh, whose decision is it? Well, let's just vote. Getting to the other side of that frustration with more clarity on who's playing what role can often, you know, feel really good and, and powerful for organizations when they get there.
0: The final thing that really stood out to me in your five ways nonprofits can make decision making more effective article was the importance of considering equity implications in making that decision.
1: Yeah. And it was so... um You know, one of the things that we talked about a lot as a team as we wrote this article was just the ways in which equity and inclusion are different. They go hand in hand, but they are different things, right? And you could have a process that's very inclusive that brings in different stakeholders, which actually could lead to a decision and an outcome that doesn't advance equity, doesn't advance racial equity or other forms of equity. And just sitting with that and then, you know, talking to folks in the field and looking at some of the the really effective tools out there on that front. What do you do with that challenge? And, and one of the favorite things I found were, you know, I'm sure many listeners use these tools, racial equity impact analyses. Um, there's a couple of organizations that, that put these out there. But, but at the heart of it, it's just about for any decision, asking a set of questions about, you know, who are the groups who are going to be affected by this, and particularly marginalized groups, whether it's along racial lines or other dimensions, who's going to be affected by this decision, and are they somehow included at the table? Are they an input? Do they have decision power? And then asking how might this decision affect them? How might it be perceived by them? And asking, you know, is the end recommendation we're deciding on going to affect disparities that affect these folks one way or the other? Right. And and if there's unintended consequences, to step back and just ask, gosh, is our overall process, you know, perpetuating inequitable power structures and what should we do about it? And, And those are the places where you know you ask those questions and you realize, yes. People from marginalized backgrounds are affected by this. No, they're not quite included the way they should be. Where I think it really just leads to better decisions in the end and advances, you know, equity overall, which I think is the goal of itself. Um, to to have a process that includes those folks that weighs those, you know, impacts and and then leads to a decision that's that's conscious of that. Um, that's I think just a tremendous, you know, value to ask those questions. And it's again one of these things that. I've seen organizations get better at over time. The more you ask those questions, you build those muscles and and you get better at making decisions that in the end are more equitable.
0: Have you seen organizations that are starting to ask the questions or what are the implications around equity or have we fully included marginalized voices in this process that has caused them to say, let's put a pause and let's go back and revisit some of the other work we've already done in this decision-making process?
1: Yeah, I think that's such a great, Great point, and, and certainly I, th- I think as organizations get better at their own diversity, equity, and inclusion work, they often realize that there's decisions they made in the past that they might want to revisit.
0: Um, can you give it? Obviously, you'll anonymize it, but can you give an example?
1: Yeah, and even you know, a thing that has been really refreshing and really energizing at Bridgepan is on our on our own internal work on our own racial equity strategy. So I've been at Bridgepan since 2008. I was actually just in an office meeting where someone was presenting on a a strategic plan we're doing with a client that really centers racial equity. And I looked back at, I had worked with that client 13 years ago on a strategic plan where I don't think we mentioned issues of race and equity once in that plan. And it was just such an indication of how far the sector's moved and how we as an organization have, have, you know, gotten better at working with clients asking questions about about equity and racial equity. Um, But that's in the context of, you know, this summer we had a really big refresh internally of our own equity strategy, where there was a process about gathering input from lots of different folks on different groups, gathering input from our stakeholders, gathering input from our board, from our clients, and thinking about what should be our priorities as an organization that works with lots of nonprofits and lots of funders around advancing equity. How does that look in the U.S. where you take a explicit racial equity lens versus, you know, we're a global organization with teams in India. What does it look like to take an equity lens there, say? And just reflecting on that process, right, where this summer we went through a, a very inclusive and exhaustive process to come up with a set of priorities on, on equity as a firm. And then thinking back to how I've seen that play out at Band over 13 years where, you know, there was a time where there were a couple really amazing, thoughtful, brave leaders internally who would ask pointed questions in firm-wide meetings. And folks would say, oh, that's such a great point. We've got to do something about that. And it didn't get the same traction as it does now, you know. I think this is an example of just, you know, getting better at making this kind of inclusive decision-making as an organization that, you know, I, I can see the benefits now, right? Where we're doing better work with clients, helping them advance equity more powerfully, having sort of eaten our own cooking in that way ourselves, right?
0: And I agree with you a hundred percent that I think we're focusing much more on an equity lens now in the sector. And that's, that's good for the sector and that's good for society. Mike, you know, Every in every episode, we we ask an off the map question, and I think I think we've got a really good one for you. So I know that you taught middle school science, and so I'd be curious to know what life lessons did you take away from teaching middle school science for three years?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's a great one, and it gives me some flashbacks. I feel like I just stopped having dreams about being a teacher in the last few years. Really? Wow. Yeah. So yeah, I taught at a middle school in Brooklyn. Was a middle school science teacher for three years. A couple of the lessons. One was just like the power of enthusiasm for the topic. Like I had like a clipboard that said science is cool on the back. And even when that first year in particular, I struggled with classroom management, like those, those kids knew that I loved science and I was going to geek out on it. And while they were there, there was going to be something like exciting and interesting, at least, you know, some of the time. And just like sitting with that, the value of enthusiasm for whatever you're working on and how that affects others. Another one is just how complicated kids are, right? Like both in terms of now being kind of like a social sector consultant, the the challenges for kids who grow up, you know, and and getting them more opportunities and achieving their full potential. There's just like, kids are so complicated with everything going on, everything at home, everything outside of school. And then just think about middle schoolers, like (laughs) they're complicated people. And probably just the last one is a real dose of humility, right? Um, when I think about the kind of teacher I was when I was 22 and, you know, the kind of teacher I could be now if I went back to the classroom with a little more emotional maturity, um, I just learned so much in those in those years in the classroom about patience and being a role model and and failing, honestly, and, and then trying to get back up and continue to do a good job that stays with me. I think it's probably the hardest thing I ever did
0: career-wise. So, Mike, it's interesting. I reflect a little bit in a similar way professionally. I started life 28 years ago as a social worker, uh, working with dual diagnosed homeless folk. And yeah, and it's and it's interesting now. I'm I'm 50 now and I look back on that and and I think, you know, with the more emotional maturity that I have now and the more life experience I have now, I think I would make a much better case manager with. Dual diagnosed homeless folk today than maybe I did when I was 22.
1: Yeah. For sure. For sure.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. No, I get it. Like, sometimes you're like, wow, if only, if only I could just take that little part back and put it over there. That would be amazing. Well, Mike, I'm so grateful that you came on today. And of course, we want to make sure that listeners know how to access lots of the great resources that the Bridgespan group has. And so, listeners, here's what I want you to do go to bridgespan.org. That's Bridgespan.org. You can download the article, Five Ways That Nonprofits Can Make Decision Making More Inclusive and More Effective. You can also download the Rapid Decision Making Tool for Nonprofits article. That's not all you should do while you're there. You should check out all the resources that Bridgespan has. Again, they're very much thought leaders. If you're at Bridgespan, you're doing research, you're writing, you are doing things that contribute directly to the nonprofit sector and frankly, can be used by you and your organization to be even stronger. And of course, um, both of those two articles I just mentioned have pretty long URLs, so I'm not going to read out those URLs here, but we are going to link to those in our show notes at SuccessfulNonprofits.com. Hey, Mike, thank you so much for coming on the podcast.
1: Hey, my pleasure. Great to talk with you. Thanks for listening, everybody, even if you were listening at 2 x speed. (laughs) <laughs> it was
0: fun. I'm, I'm so glad you mentioned that because I am that person. I'll, sometimes I'll do one and a quarter speed because I'm like, okay, I got a lot of podcasts I got to listen to. So I am kind of that person. Well, listeners, if you found this episode useful, a few things I want you to do. First of all, go onto your podcast streamer of choice and like and review the podcast. Second, download episode 167 with Jermaine Guillaume. That episode was about DEI and leading by example. Also check out episode 185. That's six ways your nonprofit can be more trans-inclusive with Andy Mara. Listeners, that is our show for this week. I hope that you have gained some insight to help your nonprofit thrive in a competitive environment. And you know, I always have to say it. I kind of get tired of saying it, but I got to say it. I'm not an accountant nor an attorney, and neither I nor the Goldenberg Group provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. This show, not a surprise, is for informational purposes only. Also not a surprise, should not be relied on for tax, legal, and accounting advice. Please, if that's what you need, find a licensed, qualified professional who can assist you. And if you are not sure what type of professional you should be talking to, or maybe just don't know someone who actually is licensed and qualified in that area, you can always reach out to me. I'm happy to help you think through it. And if I know someone, I'm happy to make a referral.